You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. Hey everyone, welcome back to Here for the Truth. I'm Joel Rafidi. Eurosimos is with me as always. Just a disclaimer and a reminder, we don't claim to possess the truth. We're here for the truth. We are on our own truth discovery process. Throughout all these conversations that we have, we don't necessarily agree with every single comment and perspective all our guests share, but we choose to have active minds in the process and use our discerning faculties as best as we possibly can to separate truth from falsity. And on this topic in particular, we do intend to have a broad range of conversations with a wide array of perspectives that will challenge our own views and yours as well. But as any good truth seeker would, the intention is to deeply contemplate without dismissing and use the differences in understanding to continue to fuel our own journeys and broaden our own capacity to stand between the tension of opposites as we all stumble our way up the mountain. Remember, ensure at all times that your mind alone is the final arbiter of truth and always place the onus on yourself to confirm and clarify anything before accepting it as fact. Please enjoy this episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. We have the great Michael Tessarian returning. Um, this is his fourth time on our podcast. He first joined us on episode 78, Unslaved, episode 102, Observations of Female Psychology, episode 121, where we explored archetypes and the origins of consciousness. He's the co-host of the Unslaved podcast, alongside our good friend, David Whitehead. Uh, throughout his career, Michael's gone through great lengths to bring the truth to the forefront um, in all the areas of, of research specific to him, including the occult, conspiracy, psychology, philosophy, and more. He's a key reason that Eurasmus and I are even connected and can't recommend his work enough. Uh, MichaelTessarian.com or Unslaved.com. We highly recommend everyone go check out those two websites. Michael, welcome back. Oh, thanks, guys. Lovely to see you. And a big thanks for bringing me on again. Uh, so great to, to be part of this. Oh, man, it's an absolute pleasure every time that we get to connect and have these conversations and dispel some myths. And obviously, we find ourselves in very intense and precarious times once again. And today, we're going to be looking at the rise of this idea of a Jewish super conspiracy, which seems to be making a return today as we speak. Um, as well as shedding some light on who might be at the root of the manipulation that we see taking place all around us. So, Michael, however you want to begin this one, let's get into it. Well, uh, it's difficult when uh, we place the blame on just uh, the Jewish conspiracy. That's where I would already have a bit of a problem because that is yep. based largely in a lot of disinformation that's been going along in this movement. It's sort of it's sort of a endemic in this movement. I myself started that way years ago, you know, um, and have some fantastic teachers that I read and studied. And because it's a vast subject, I've written extensively on it, uh, going into the ancient history of those we call the Jews to uncover that moving up to, you know, the role in secret societies, and then, of course, up to the funding of Israel and on from that. But the article that, you know, you wanted to discuss with me and others on that website are a little bit of a change, and that is because I did the unthinkable. 
when you are first introduced to this concept of a Jewish universal world conspiracy number, and you're reading the advocates of it, some of them are very interesting people. You can see that some of them are very, also very, very genuine. But uh, when you are going along that road, you start to get more and more dogmatic. Maybe this happens even when you don't realize it. And so one of the great failings of people who look at the, the conspiracy from that point of view and just blame Jews is that they have never studied a far more interesting and intriguing subject. And that is the history of anti-Semitism. <clears throat> As I proceeded researching the anti-Semitic writers, and absorbing in detail everything they had to say, and also contradictions between them, because you know they're not. You got British Israelitism. I don't know if we can even touch on that. You've got uh, the neo-Naziism, and a lot of other little uh, you know sort of nuances with when it comes to the Jewish conspiracy. You've even got Benjamin Freeman and Arthur Kostler. You've got the Kazar story. You see. So it takes a devil of a time to even get your arms around the information that constitutes the so-called Jewish universal conspiracy and to work out all that because it's multifaceted. You've got the Diana Sprangolas, you know, others I mentioned. You've got your uh, David Dukes. So there's a lot, uh, you know, and we've even had guests on, on Slaved that, you know, approach things from that point of view. But then, just like yourselves, what we wanted to do is also get other voices on the counterpoint that you know, which I think is just healthy for any podcast anyway, to present our audience with, you know, both sides of the story. And uh, we've been ridiculed for that. And uh, I just don't think people are very open-minded. But to get back to the point, as I started to get my arms around all of this information, I am a person who notices a lot of contradictions. But also I'm a person who would continually read the opposite side. Mm -hmm whether you found that in a bibliography of one of these books or just an independent book or, you know, this is what research does, you see. If you're a real researcher, that is, you know, you come across information that doesn't fit your dogma, then you most people just leave it aside. Well, I don't. I bring it into the mix immediately. And what that led me up to then was to say, as I'm studying this uh, material, this literature that speaks of a Jewish conspiracy, I'm also going to do the unthinkable. And that is to study the history of anti-Semitism at the same time mm -hmm. to see where that would lead. And that became, uh, as time went by, uh, more fascinating, actually, as a subject. Just, I mean, I'm totally looking at things from an unbiased point of view. And so from a scholastic point of view, I just find that subject to be more interesting and find out how ancient it is. Now, this is not to exonerate conspiratorial Jews or pseudo-Jews. You know, these would be people like the Sabbateans and the Frankists, people that I deal with in that article. Yep. And a whole slew of other, oh, say, say the Bolshevik Revolution, you know, things like that. Uh, the world bankers, I mean, you can tell me they don't exist, and they've all got many of them have Jewish names. Absolutely, but see, the anti-Semite leaves it there. He doesn't think to himself that if I am going to find out that there's a phenomena known as Catholic pedophile priests, 
which there obviously is, do I indict all of Catholics mm-hmm. in the world because of that? Or because I find out that uh, the Shankle butchers in Northern Ireland did some atrocities on the Protestant side, you know, in the Protestant enclaves of Belfast, that now suddenly all orange men and all Protestants are automatically to be demonized? No. Nobody's ever thought that, and nobody seen ever would. But why is it that when some people with Jewish names, George Soros, whatever, right, do things that are clearly wrong, or Henry Kissinger, you know, pick, pick with whoever you want, that now I should automatically pillory everybody who's Jewish. You know, that's the general anti-Semitic way, almost without fail. They all do this. And so then to finish the overview remarks here, this took me on a vast journey because when you start to understand the history of this subject called anti-Semitism, it takes you right back to ancient Egypt, to the destruction of the first temple of Jerusalem, to the destruction of the second temple, to other extraordinary events that happened in ancient times. So, you know, I, I formed, I had to put those articles somewhere. And so they ended up on the female Illuminati website uh, in context mm-hmm. of that subject, you know, because the Jews, most Jews don't know anything about their own history. They, uh, they too believe only what they've been told about their ancestry. And so, uh, yeah, it all fit. And uh, also the double volumes of uh, Irish Origins Civilization, Trees of Life book. You know, there's been a lot of work that I've done on this to unpack the ancient roots of the subject. And then, you know, as you move up towards today, it takes on a slightly different complexion. You know, when we reach the modern world, and it's, it's absolutely labyrinthine. And then in May, we just did a podcast called Princes of Light based on the last article I did, which people can find there on the Female Illuminati site as well. Right up to the present day, we've been turning it around again and uncovering it and looking at the data again, just like a good forensic forensic detective does. You know, you bring it out again, lay it out again one more time, sidelight it, get other people's opinion, you know, review what you've done. And uh, what, I mean, obviously then my, my conclusion uh I'd be an error not to mention it, is that I don't know, I no longer believe in a universal worldwide Jewish conspiracy. You know, so we can take it up from that point. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, these times that, you know, we're seeing intensify around us now, just based on my observations and what I'm seeing within the collective, there definitely seems to be this seething, unconscious um, desire to basically paint and tarnish all Jews with, with the same brush. And the moment events occur that, you know, might prompt people's preconditioned the cognitive biases, it's all out attack. It becomes no holds barred when it comes to, you know, pushing this this so-called Jewish conspiracy. Um, so I'm very curious as to what's underlying the underbelly of the of the collective psychology that gives rise to this. Yeah. And also why um, you know, the Jewish people seem to be painted with the same brush, whereas the Catholics and Irish, you know, haven't. So I'm curious, like, why that is. Yeah. And I mean, just to, just to bring bring in the other side, when I read the, the remarks and, and the commentary, like, I think a lot of it has to do with um, the disproportionate number of, of Jews in positions of high power, whether it's in the media, whether it's in the politics, um, or, or whatever it might be, like, this seems to imbue this idea in, in, in the remarks and in the commentary. Yes, well, that certainly let's start with that then, because that has to be 
absolutely key. And you don't have to be anti-Semitic to notice that. Mm -hmm. I mean, one glance at the Bolshevik Revolution, one glance at the you know the older Ottoman Empire, uh, and how it was top-heavy with with uh, Jews, crypto Jews at that point. Uh, so somebody who had studied this, and of course, if you look into the early banksters of the United States, you know you see a, not, you see, you see some Jewish names. Let's put it that way. There's enough to worry be worrisome. You know what I mean? So. Yes. How does one account for that? Uh, the the thing with that to understand is my research, and I can only talk from that, is to show you that they're not Jews. They have Jewish names. That's about as far as it goes. And that sounds extremely bizarre and uh, contradictory, unless you know the, the history of this anti-Semitism and some of the things that went on, not just the, the history of anti-Semitism, but the history of Judaism. The whistle was blown, you see, in the 17th century by Jewish elders and Jewish rabbis that there was amongst their group Satanists, what we would now call Satanists, out-and-out Satanists, who had risen up within their movement and also within uh, other movements, not just Judaism, and they were abroad in the Middle East and Europe. Think of uh, Sabbatai Zavi mm -hmm. or Sabbatai Zevi for just one example. Now, he was caught captured, arrested, probably tortured or whatever. And he can, to get out of it, he converted to Islam. But about a hundred years later, Jacob Frank did exactly the same thing. He rose up as a messianic Jew, trying to fool the Jewish people, which is easy to do back then because nobody was literate. And the Jews were always sixth class citizens. We, we don't, we think we know third class is pretty rough. Try being a Jew in history. And so when a messianic character quoting some old verses from the Talmud of the Torah rose up, and this would be Yaakov Frank. Uh, there's been many others, actually, you know, but uh, let's uh, leave that aside. I deal with some of them in the Irish Origins book. But uh, Yaakov Frank jumped up. He was roasted. He was caught. And he converted to Judaism, uh, to, uh, to Christianity. Zevi converted to Islam to escape death under the sultan who gave him a choice, convert, and we can parade you around. You know, it's good to have converts that are living because then, you know, it's better than just putting you to death where you become a martyr and your followers go apeshit. We don't want that. And something happened along the same lines with uh, with Frank. And this will get to the heart of your question. So not only did those two guys convert one to, one to Islam and the other to Christianity, all of their followers, which were considerable, also converted. And so the rabbis and the elders were very suspicious of this. We'll just talk about Judaism for now. Mm -hmm. And they put out warnings that your anti-Semitic writers and the vast majority of Christian writers never want to tell you or mention because it upsets the apple cart. And that is the word went out to almost all the communities of Europe and the Middle East to watch out for the satanic element. Now, we're talking about the real Satanist element here, not what you know Christian evangelists and their megachurches are talking about. We're talking about the real thing. And they said that these Satanists were now amongst us. So please, communities, be careful. Know your Torah well, because there's subversion there. And this was an ongoing thing in the Jewish world. We're never taught about it. And then on the practical level, it meant that these Satanists were alive and broad within Judaism and could use Jewish fronts, Jewish names, and Jewish institutions to 
purvey their evil. So this is what's been going on. And this is a very, very powerful group because every time you camouflage yourself, it's fantastic, the tiger in the long grass. And this would only be two conversions that I can think of. There were several others. And one maybe we can get to, which is the most important conversion, which involves the Knights Templar. But so the ones that you find at the Bolshevik Revolution, your Moses, Hesses, and your Parvises, and uh, your Trotskys and people like that, the ones who are the big world movers, you know, and there's Trotsky who invented the word racism so that anytime anybody uses that, you know. And we know that these commies are the ones who then uh, pervade a lot of the dogma of being oppressed, the dogma of being an underdog, and having capitalist oppressors and all of this kind of language. And you know, if we study the history of Islam, you'll find out that it is in the Islamic world that this kind of rhetoric became popular in 1967. Before that, Islam's raison d'etre or mandate was sort of shy of that. And you never heard such terms being used. But after 1967, you not only got the Islam world starting to speak in communistic red and pinko language, but you also got it in America in the form of pluralism and feminism and multiculturalism and what have you. All of this communist rhetoric from Trotsky and the communists entering in. It's just an interesting fact, right? And so arose a phenomena, not just of anti-Semitism, but of left-wing anti-Semitism. That's another piece that you, know, you have to have in place. I, I prefer to call it Islamo-communism, uh, in which, uh, you know, but, but that would date from the time of the communist period. But what people don't realize is this kind of socialism that we know from 1917 and the Bolshevik Revolution had been in the world and so before, even back in the 17th century, and a lot longer before that. So this type of socialism actually originates with the fourth sect, going back to uh, uh, the earliest days in uh, you know before the birth of Jesus, Jesus' own family. And then you know you can track that as well uh, up up until you know the 17th century. It went through really great changes. So there's this there's this left wing element as well. And what the experts say on that is that not only are these crypto uh, these pseudo Jews, the ones that you're talking about when you speak about or identify a Jewish conspiracy, but they tend to be very left wing. Mm -hmm. And on the lightest level. Being left-wing just means that you're for the oppressor. But what we're finding out today, which has enormous ramifications for history, is that actually it's Islam's forces that are the most vehement left-wingers attacking Israel. And it is the left-wing in America and Britain in the form of LGBTQ and uh, transgender and left-wing right and communists that seem to be strangely backing Islam. How the hell can that marriage be explained unless you do the homework that I'm talking about? Yeah, well, which is the history of Judaism and the history of anti-Semitism. Yeah, well, I mean, when when you say that, Soros definitely comes to mind. Who to me is is an individual who's purely Jewish by name only. You know, all all other there actions, all other actions would point to the fact that he despises Judaism, and we know that he's involved with funding many of these left left wing groups that you mentioned. Oh, yes, that's right. And so this uh, originates 
far, far beyond the known history with a group called the Nazarenes, also known as the Fourth Sect, and even before that. Let me give you one example. When I said the 1700s, it is well known that Super Jew, uh, Moses Mendelssohn, is the main founder, a funder of the Illuminati. But he was a Jacobin. He supported the revolution in the, you know France, the, the reign of terror. You can't get any more left wing. So I'm a bit confused here. And he was a friend of the Rothschilds. So obviously, right there, you, you, your anti-Semite is—he's—he's he's, he's out of it. He cannot explain that. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is just one example. How can a multi-millionaire super Jew, who's known to be a founder of the Illuminati, and he was a Jacobin, a supporter of the French Revolution, which is about as left-wing as you can get—an anti-monarchic, an anti-capitalist, an anti-individualistic. How can that even be? That's in the 1700s. Well, it can be because of exactly what I'm talking about. Left-wing anti-Semitism. And Jews can be a member of it. The psychology of which, as I've already mentioned, I, I identify with the underdog. Well, right, if you're stupid, then you will. Uh, but you can be Jewish and stupid. Mm -hmm. And also because the Jews, as I just already said, were six-class citizens for most of their uh, sojourn in any country in the world for thousands of years, of course they're going to see themselves as underdogs. Climbing out of that, well, I don't even know if you can. Even if you're a millionaire Jew, you might still in your mind and you and your family still be thinking of yourselves as well-to-do Jews, but still as relative underdogs in, the, in terms of the, of the world. And so would I. Because when Gentiles, in the world of Gentiles for 2,000 years, Gentiles had the freedom, relative freedom, to make money, for instance, you're just talking economics here, in any which way that they wanted whereas Jews were highly restricted in how they could earn money. So when people blame them of being moneylenders, they forget that the way that a Jew could make money, serious money, was so limited by the powers and edicts of the towns and the villages and the, and the cities in which he lived that it's a miracle that he made money at all. This is important because, of course, in order to run a worldwide conspiracy, you need ready cash and lots of it. Well, as I've shown in my work, the Jews didn't have ready cash and lots of it until a very late date. And that many of the great Jewish fortunes were lost time and time again. They had to rebuild it through thrift and capitalism. And that on the other side, the great families of Germany, France, Europe, you know, whatever, they had maintained their wealth and their fortune. Now, one of the great advocates of this, one of the great uh, thinkers on this is Ayn Rand who had completely understood about most of the things we're talking about. And luckily, on her institute today, you can go, I post on the blog all the time about this, but uh, oh, this will be the Michael Stein blog on Unslaved. It's under the free section of Unslaved. But if you go to her, right, right to her YouTube page, Ayn Rand Institute, there are thinkers there who go into a little bit of this history to show you this. And mostly what she cracked was this left-wing infiltration. And... It's, 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 it's a, you know, we couldn't go into it in one podcast, but if you had to do it in one sentence, you'd just say that, look, in 1989, when the communists knew that they were fini finished in terms of the, the exoteric Bolshevik uh, phase in Russia, in Soviet Russia, 
they realize that they had to revamp, right? I hesitate there because actually, no, you should really go back to the date after the war. Uh, 89 is correct, but there's a, even before this, there's an event that took place, and that concerns the Nazis. When the Nazi experiment was over, this would be after 1945, and the years just following that, they realized that they were going to lose. Now, we know, or you should know, that the Nazis are socialists. You've dealt with that on your show, haven't you? You know that. Most people in the whole wide world don't know that, and still the penny hasn't dropped for them, but we know that. So when you, but what's not told you is this, that when the Nazis realized that the game was up, some of the real honchos, the ones who were the ideologues, uh, started to covet, covet Islam. They actually moved. They actually started living with uh, the sultans of Egypt and, uh, and Jordan and also in Saudi Arabia and other Muslim countries. And they were greeted. Maybe we can get to the reason why that was in a minute. Exactly the same thing happened in 1989 when the communists, now we're talking about Nazis and communists being basically socialists, they're the same, they're not as diverted as people think. Bear that in mind. So when the communist experiment started to look like it was uh, fading out, there was going to be a change, and there was no longer this bilateral division in the world, it was going to become unipolar with the Americas being in charge. Guess what they did? They followed suit. They followed the Nazis and started the Khazit with Islam. And then these two phases, taken together, amount to the uh, rise of Islamo-communism. So it is Islam today that is communistic and fascistic, or Nazi. The Nazis went and became ideologues in the Islamic world, and the communists did likewise. What a, what a uh, cocktail. This has never been told to you by mainstream writers or sound. They couldn't dream of having you know this. Yeah. But this was facilitated by Hitler himself, who had the Grand Mufti of uh, Jerusalem, lived in Germany during the war and was uh, working with Hitler, the Grand Mufti of Islam, living in Jerusalem. And other dignitaries from the Islamic world stayed in Germany during the Second World War, worked closely with Hitler in order to for form SS brigades in the, in the Middle East. They came to Hitler because they, they had one thing in common, which was how do we get rid of the Jews? So the Nazis, who had only been working on that you know, plan in, 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 in Germany, as we all know, right, said, by God, we've got an ally here. And that alliance didn't fade, as history wants you to know. Far from it. In fact, Islam became the new home of the card-carrying Nazis. You've heard about the rat line in which the Vatican helped certain uh, head honchos within Nazism escape. And that's all true. Uh, you, one can get into that. But what is that is openly admitted by writers, Operation Paperclip and what have you, right? But what has not been so easily revealed is this Nazi connection to Islam. But, the, but what Islam no, has known for years, what the Western world has not even labored until now, and that is to know that fascism, that Nazism is socialism. And it turned out that the Islamic world has been interested in socialism long before Nazism came on the scene. Uh, the rulers of the Ottoman Empire were not only uh, Jewish, 
and one of the first podcasts we ever did on uh, Unslaved goes into this. I think it was even, maybe it might have even been number one or two, something like that really early on, right? But, well, yeah, we see, what, let, let's put it this way. While the Nazi party in the 1930s was gaining power in Europe, simultaneously in the East, and this includes even India, Everything I'm saying pertains even to uh, the rise of communism in India, which is a subject very few people know about, how utterly Marxist that country it was and remains. Okay, but the focal point for us right now is the Middle East, is the, the dying Ottoman Empire. At this period, unknown to most people, there was what is known as the Pan-Turkic Movement. And you can look it up. And when you look it up, even on Wikipedia, it has a little red flag. Wow. Wikipedia has these little images on there. Look up also, while you're doing that, Pan-Arabic movement. And it'll have a little red flag beside it. Look up Young Turks. Look up Young Italy. Look up Young Ireland. And look up Young Russia. And you will find something that pertains immensely to what we're talking about. That these lands, the old guard was, was basically perishing. And the youth of these countries, and we'll just stick here to Turkey and Arabia. Can you believe it? The youth had been watching what was taking place at the, in Russia at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution and started to identify with the left wing as it started to, you know, its genesis. How many people have told you this? One wouldn't even see how, you know, on paper, if you just go with what you know, how Islam, right? And we're thinking here, Quran and Orthodox, you know, Shiitism or whatever you want to call it. It just doesn't seem to fit, right? Well, this, this is one of my questions is like, what are some, I guess, modern day examples that people can look to to see this Islamo-communism prevalent today? Well, it's in everything today. It's in the streets, and exactly as I said, where these transgender people and the left wing all over the world in America are supporting Islam. It's why Islam is, is in the news right now. Mm -hmm. This fascist Islam, right, This the, the Muslim Brotherhood, it got infiltrated, right? Islam was being infiltrated by Bolsheviks, by communists. They turned the heads of the young and formed these movements all over the world. Young Ireland is the genesis of all of the Republican movements in Ireland. Young Italy with the Garibaldi and uh, Giuseppe Mazzini, you know, you know it's, it's incredible. But very few people know that you had it in the Far East. You had it in Iraq. You had it in Iran. In some places it was suppressed, and they went back to traditional things, but not all. And so, in fact, I think it was out of the five great leaders of the Ottoman Empire, these uh, crypto-Jews, all uh, three of them were so left-wing that when the Ottoman Empire finally did fall, this is just around about the, after the time of the Second World War, three of them fled to Russia into the hands of the Soviets to escape punishment. Unbelievable. Ran to the, to the Soviets where they'd been getting support and guns and everything like that, right? There's just proof of that. So this left-wing, as I said, when the communist world fell, or apparently fell in 1989, 
the thinkers and the ideologues say we're not giving up any more than the Nazis had said that back in the 1945. So in 1989, a marriage in hell was made where the communists just simply moved east and entered into the Muslim Brotherhood and behind the terrorist organizations that are now raising their heads through Hamas and Hezbollah and innumerable others. And the West let it happen. Is, is there a relationship between the, these pseudo-Jews or crypto-Jews and this Islamo-Communism movement? Well, yeah, the pseudo that's what it was all about. Yeah. That pseudo, see, because of the uh, re- communist rhetoric that you see in Islam about we are the oppressed people, that's all communist rhetoric, or the Jews are racist. And all of this verbiage, this, this wasn't in their lexicon originally. It came in after 1967. So what happened in 67? Because I, I know, I guess, what comes to mind is that the Six-Day War happened in 67, but what else happened yeah. in 67 to, I guess, bridge this communism into Islam? Oh, well, that was after, it happened after the Jews got Israel. Because now the rhetoric could change for the local farmers there, the pig-ignorant uh, Palestinians who are so hated by even other Islamic countries around them. That's another thing that's been suppressed from you. That's why they're not accepted into any other land. Did you ever question why even today refugees from Gaza are not being accepted into nearby uh, Egypt or Jordan or Syria? Because what they're not telling you is that Islam has divides that you can't even imagine. And one of the biggest divides is that the Palestinians are considered such rabble. They're considered like we would today think of anarchists or BLM or Antifa. And worse. And so other Egyptian countries always come up with some scam story to not let them in. But back to your point, it was easy to let those types of purple believe that the Jews had come in to oppress them. As I say, this communist group started to move in on the Palestinians, and your Hezbollahs are the young men, as I keep saying, who actually fell for this tripe, right? The 'er ne'er-do-wells, the poverty-stricken, the ones uh, who have no homeland. They saw the Jews as oppressors. And the main reason why local Arabs and Islamic people were incensed that the Sultan should sell Palestine, and by the way, that's another point, it was bought by Jews, it was never invaded, and there's no such thing as occupied territories, that's all medialized, it was purchased. And the land was purchased sometimes at extraordinarily hiked prices, way beyond what the Sultan had uh, allowed. That means that local Palestinian people now selling their land, would hike the price to Jews about eight times. Look at all the facts on this, from the most eminent scholars. And so dirty, filthy marshland that wasn't worth anything, they hiked up their land prices, and the Jews still paid it. So the Jews have paid not only once for the land that they're on, they paid like up to eight times the price that it was worth for the land they're on, but the media will never tell you that. But to answer your question, It was easy to get in there as these Nazi groups, fascist groups, and communist groups came into the Middle East, started to train and teach through schools and through other propaganda these young men in the Islamic kingdom, in the Islamic world, who were gullible enough to fall for this, not realizing Nazism is what they're they're chewing on here. They're becoming the new Nazi world. But then the communists came in, and we know they're the same anyway, with the rhetoric of the underdog. But to get to your answer, that doesn't stop some left-wing Jews from doing the same thing. Because the Jews, as I said, have been underdogs themselves for centuries. And so some very uninformed, stupid Jews, right, 
on the left also bought the narrative. This is, you know, sickening and complicated. It's sickening that Islamic people should have followed communism, and they've had the people from within Islam warn them not to do so, but they don't listen. And it's sickening that Jews within the Jewish community have also fallen for the left wing. The, the real enemy right here is left wing politics found in Islam, found in Judaism, found in Christianity, found in atheism. It's the contaminatory force. And its history goes back, as I say, to the fourth sect, you know, all the way back uh, a, 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 a long history. But you see, when you see the fall of the, of the Bolshevik system in Russia, when you see the fall of Nazism, we tend to believe it just disappeared and all you'd have is just wreckage. No. What history does not tell you, doesn't want you to know, is that the, these ideologues had already put out tentacles, sent their, sent their best propagandists into the Islamic world. Also some Jews. And of course, as we've already said, from the 17th century, the Jews had already had a left-wing element, a satanic element within it. Obviously, then, you can see that it is their descendants who get behind the left-wing uh, uh, political movements of today, you know, who uh, uh, queers marching for Islam and all sorts of kooky groups. Don't think that they're actually representing Judaism or Israel. They're not. This is the thing that has to be understood. So hopefully maybe, you know, we've cleared that a little bit up, uh, which deals with modern times. But there's a long history to anti-Semitism, and it takes all sorts of forms. And this is one of them. What role did Karl Marx play in all this? He was a prime mover. He is one of the probably the poster children for uh, left-wing anti-Semitism. He wrote a book called On the Jewish Question, which is the Bible. I'm glad you brought up his name. Erasmus, he wrote the Bible on left-wing anti-Semitism. You also remember a document that people might know, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, right? Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That was another Bible written by the same left-wing anti-Semitic Jews. In order, uh, because when, how do I usually explain this? Just because a wolf might wear sheep's clothing doesn't mean that he likes sheep. So the infiltrators of Judaism don't necessarily like ordinary Jewish people, but that's an understatement. They hate them. You know, these groups that infiltrated Christianity, Islam, and uh, Judaism have no love for the, the people, you know, that are providing them the camouflage. So the protocols of the elders of Zion were a deviation of the anti-Semitic group to bring mayhem to Jews, which it did. It came out of Russia because, and here's another anecdote that most people don't know, of all the countries in the world that are the most anti-Semitic, Russia is number one. Germany is way down the list. Austro-Hungary was more anti-Semitic, but the number one, look, it shows our history is skewed. The Jews were more free in Germany than they ever were. In fact, Otto von Bismarck you know, freed them from all restrictions, and Germany flourished. But from the dawn of time till today, the most anti-Semitic country is, was, was and is Russia. This will not be told to you. So it's not a surprise that the protocols of the elders of Zion came out from the Russian secret police. It's not authentic at all. 
It's it's purely anti-Semitic, and it is there to uh, bring pogroms and horror on the on the Jews. Now, other countries have done similar acts of uh, anti-Semitic uh, attacks, just like Russia. I'm saying, but let's cover that for just a minute, if I could. And that is because of all the kinds of ways that the Jews were allowed to make money, one of them was money lending. Because it's forbidden in, is, in Islam, and it's forbidden by the Bible and Christianity, stupidly. So when people come after the Jews for usury, what they fail to understand is that their own forefathers climbed out of the slime. We're talking Gentiles here, right? We're talking about feudal people who were considered by the barons as lowly as the cattle and the pigs that they raised for the barons. And that one of the only ways out for your forefathers and mine to become anything at all in their own lives, like open a shop or open a stable or open a livery company or you know a, a watchmaking enterprise or, or cartography or uh, translating letter, writing letters for people, any of these businesses were facilitated by usury. The anti-Semitic writer doesn't know anything about, about this and will never concede this. But it is through being able to lend money that your forefathers and mine were able to better their lives, open a mill, buy a few horses, buy a few cows, etc. Usury is the West. Money lending and capitalism created the West. And so again, we find out this left-wing anti-Semitism in those who blame the Jews for money lending. As a matter of fact, they weren't even the first. The Knights Templar were the first, and they're by hangs a tail. But let's just keep it to the you know, context we're talking about. Those who criticize the Jews for money lending obviously show you how little they know about the origins of the West, and that even princely people borrowed money. But that gets back to the point of the pogroms. In many countries, and this is demonstrable by lots of proofs, Jewish people know this all too well, because they were the people who were victimized by what I'm going to say next. All over Europe, from Italy to Russia to Germany to Britain, if you were consistently borrowing lots of money from these Jewish money lenders, and the point came where you had to, you know, give it back or give your assets. Remember, because you know, they were some of these people were land rich, but they didn't have liquid cash. So they went to the Jewish money lenders and borrowed, you know, lots of money. But when a point came where you couldn't uh, pay it back, you raised a mob and you went and you burned them out. I think it was in Leicester, uh, not too long ago, they found a well in which over 500 Jewish bodies were found. You know, this is from the medieval period. They dug them up recently, a university found that there have been 500. That's just one instance of slaughter where the entire Jewish population of the city was literally burned out and systematically murdered and their bodies dumped into a well. Jews have recorded hundreds of such events. And one of the reasons why this was is because the rich who owned the money to the moneylenders and didn't want to pay it back, this is especially uh, the case in Portugal and Spain, would raise up a mob who would then spread some anti-Semitic uh, nonsense about the Jews poisoning wells or stealing children or being involved in ritual murder or whatever, that, or they're being witches, you know, the usual shit, right? And the mob, the thick, stupid-headed, sh shithead mob, would go and burn out these Jews and seize all their assets, 
and then the, the, the princely ones didn't have to pay it back. And this happened over and over and over and over again down through history. So the accusations of money lending are absolutely fatuous and wrongheaded. And people like Ayn Rand, who were you know uh, advocates of capitalism, and many, many others saw through this. And sadly, the Jewish punishments and the anti-Semitism that preceded it, because in order to burn the Jews out, you've got to you know, first be spreading lies about them or taking some misdemeanors that they did do and then you know blowing those up to kingdom come so that the mob will go and witch hunt them and, and, and wipe them out. So in the history of anti-Semitism, you know, these are just a few anecdotes that I'm throwing into the mix. I'm not forcing people to believe this, but they can go and research it on their own uh, so they can see this. And as I said, the most important anecdote of everything I've just said is the Templar rule. The Jews were not the first money lenders of any land. The Knights Templar were, you know, and, and we can maybe explore that too. But I uh, hope that explains some of the reasons why there are so many anti-Semitic groups is because of uh, they used to lend money. And then when you don't want to pay it back, it's very, very simple to just put a brick through their window and make some silly accusations about them and their religion and have them burned out. And this is what happened time and time again in almost every city in the world. Where, where does Zionism fit in this picture? Very closely to what I've just said. I'm glad you brought that up, Joel. Because I'll preview it by saying that although the Jews were persecuted quite widely, and particularly in Russia, because remember, most of the Jews who actually went to Israel you know, and bought the thing of Zionism, bought the mandate of Zionism, or from Russia. That needs to be borne in mind. But as badly as some of these Jews were persecuted in certain countries, they didn't want to listen to the Zionist leaders, people like Theodore Herzl and Chaim Wiseman and others, right? So they kind of resisted, and they listened to their rabbis. And the, to sum up this point, the rabbis were generally anti-Zionist. They said, look, some of us are for the principle of having Palestine because it's in the Bible. That was the homeland of you know, ancient Judea, remember, right? The 10 tribes of Israel and the two tribes of Judah. That's all our land. You know, what, you know what's interesting is that in Herzl's diaries, it's like Palestine wasn't even at the forefront of what they were discussing for a Jewish homeland. Right. They were talking about Uganda, Cyprus, other, other options. Arizona. Uh, yeah. So Madagascar. Yeah. The biggest one was Madagascar. It was called, uh, you can look it up, called the Havara Agreement, H-A-A-V-R-A. Uh, on my Germanophobia site, I have all that information. You're quite right, Uganda. There's multiple places on the cards. And so the rabbis were saying, you know, in theory, and from our religious point of view, we would love to go back to the homeland. Understood. And that's why you have the Zionist movement. You know, those who really hardcore believed in that. Otherwise, why would they, right? But a great many rabbis said, but we have suffered so much to be in these towns and villages and cities of where we are now. Say you're in Hungary or say you're in Germany. So the rabbis, once approached by the Zionists, thought about it all over the world, from Canada, Britain, Scotland, everywhere, France, Portugal. And they said, you know, and they would tell their congregation, I think we're better off where we are. We've been persecuted. We've been hounded. But we're doing good. Some of us are very wealthy. We have assimilated into these countries. It's been very, very, very hard. But 
after we've taken all these sacrifices in order to assimilate and do well, we've got big businesses, we own hotels and whatever it might be, you know, we're in the diamond trade. Hey, let's look at that. Do we not uproot ourselves and all head back to the Dust Bowl of Palestine? And so the congregation, especially the rich Jews, started to say, oh no, it's theory, it's part of our custom, it's cultural, but in reality, look, I wear suits and ties, I've, I've got a four-horse carriage, I've got butlers and maids, and we live in a big house. I'm not giving that up, especially it's been hard fought and a hard one. My kids go to the best universities. <laughs> Israel, <laughs> tomorrow. Well, I, might, I might donate some money. How about that? So Herzl and these people had a devil of a time trying to sell any kind of homeland. The reason why you say that it was could have been other places is because of different difficulty negotiating with the different uh, you know the Gentile uh, governments. It wasn't so clear, and they had to sort of settle for whatever they could get, you know, because there was a lot of resistance. But the main resistance came from Jews themselves, who, for those reasons I've just mentioned, said, "Oh, I don't see me going out to a place like that, a dust bowl." But there were some, especially in Russia. The anti-Semitic countries were so vicious to them that the rabbis said, no, it looks attractive because we have been treated so badly. We're so impoverished. Every time we get a modicum of wealth, they fucking come and seize it. Our, our children are not allowed to go into schools and universities in Russia. There's, there's a completely anti-Semitic lockdown. We are the ones who will go. So some of the poorer people, the poorer Jews, right, the ones without the great wealth, said, you know, maybe we'll give it a chance. And they're the ones who flocked, first of all. So when you talk about Israel, the first thing you got to realize is, why did Jews want to go there? Because they were absolutely pilloried and molested by the countries that they were in. That's what the anti-Semitic person doesn't also want to tell you. Now, going along with that is the important question of who owned the land, right? So at this time, it was the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. And for hundreds of years, Jews had been petitioning the Sultan very politely and with lots of money saying, sell us the land. Nobody lives on it really anyway, so sell us the land. And he wouldn't do it. This was just a peccadillo. And many, you know, it's a long story. Many authorities from other parts of the world came in and said, yeah, why don't you sell it to them? You're the sick man of Europe. You are an empire that's in complete decay and you need the money because you've got loans with all of our banks. That's how even the Rothschilds get involved. The Ottoman Empire Sultan have been borrowing money from everybody, Jews, Gentiles, Germans. He allowed the Germans to build this Baghdad Berlin Railroad which led, you see, far into the east, so Germany could have a pipeline that deals with the, you know, the enemies that Germany had. This trade route for them was very, very important, right? And the Sultan said, you know, we'll work with Germany, and they became liaison with Germany. That's why there's so many Turks today in Germany, because Germany and Turkey were always allies. But back to the point, why did the Turkish Empire fail? It goes along with the point about why the Jews go to Palestine. It failed, folks, because... All Islamic countries failed. Not one is sovereign. Not one is a high civilization. 
Usually they're controlled entirely by the fanatics, like Iran is now controlled by religious fanatics who are living in the Middle Ages. Uh, others got rid of benign monarchs, like what happened in Iraq, you know, with the Shah. Uh, sorry, sorry, in Iran with the Shah. And others in Iraq that looked like they might be coming modern and then were wiped out. And all in Pakistan, Libya, wherever, the same things happened. None about, of them were sustainable. What about None the of them UAE? could exist without what, foreign aid, number one. And that's still the same today. What about the UAE today? What? The UAE today. Wouldn't that be an example? Right, of right. Yeah, this comes to the point when oil was discovered. But despite that, and remember, the time I'm talking about, which is the fall of the Ottoman Empire, oil had not yet been discovered. So this is where we're moving this direction. But even after the oil has been discovered, not much has changed for the average Islamic country. So to finish the point, the Islamic countries couldn't allow the Jews into Palestine because they knew that in contrast to the civilization that the Jews would create, they were going to look like a bunch of shepherds. So in deep, deep envy, the sultan wouldn't sell the land. And even after the time that he finally did concede, and this was pressure from Britain and what have you, right? And the Zionist movement, uh, although they needed the British help to get it. There was a great fear on the side of the Palestinians and the Syrians and whoever else that they're going to look like a bunch of sheep herders on every single level when the Jews get started to build their civilization. And this was true. And Ayn Rand spotted this early on and then said this, that envy is the key of the conflict in the Middle East, that you can't have these primitive mud races having Israel come there because it's going to raise its towers and raise its democratic you know, uh, civilization there, and it's going to put the shame everything in Islam. Go back to the point I just made. Why did the Ottoman Empire, which is a vast empire, Islamic uh, empire, fail? For this very reason. It's because no Muslim country can hope with the way that they are and their religion to build a civilization. Then you'd say, well, how come they have lasted for as long as some of them did? It's because Islam is a, is a uh, parasitical uh, structure that lived on conquest from the time it started in the 7th century. It lived on conquest of other lands and the seizure of the assets of other lands, which they could live on. It's called booty. It's called loot. And then while you have conquered these lands, you tax the Christians and the Jews. So all Islamic countries, and this includes Baghdad, I don't care where you're looking, wherever there's an Islamic dominant caliphate, they can only survive even in the, in the rubbish way that they live and that they are able to survive in the intense poverty that their people know. But the only time they actually can survive and thrive is when they're taxing the ones who are the thrifty ones and they're the Christians and the Jews. Right? So the income of Islam, Islamic countries, only comes from extortion and cannibalization, bar none. That is the reason why the Ottoman Empire failed and had to finally then, you know, sell up the land and the agreements. You know, we don't need to talk about all of that. So, as you said, 1967 is a response then to 1948. 1948 is a response to the fall of the Ottoman Empire because all Islamic so-called sociological structures are bound to fail and can only sustain themselves through this means. 
and the more anti-Western they are, the more likely they're going to fail. So Iran looks like it's uh, anti-Western to you, and you say, how can it survive? Because it turns to another source to get its uh, resources, Russia, communist, the communists, and to China. But they'll never sustain themselves on their own. Now, this is slightly amended when Saudi Arabia and these other places discover oil. And that turns the page and takes us into a different direction. It doesn't change what I said about Islamic cultures, but it changes the story of history in a slightly different way. And maybe we can, if there's time, talk about that. You know, I don't know if you want to go down that road. Yeah, just one, one thing that comes up for me is like, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Miko Paled. Uh, the, the, he wrote a book called The General Son, who was the son of a Zionist general. You shared a video of his a while ago on Unslaved. Might have been might have been years ago. But he talks about um, pre-1948 Palestine. He talks about the city of Jaffa as a Jaffa as a bustling civilization, incredible arts, culture, education, um, et cetera, et cetera. People can Google Jaffa pre-1948 and have a look at it. And it's not exactly a, a mud bowl if, if you go into researching that. So just to kind of, I guess. Well, as I said, the know. cultures that did exist were financed by Christians and Jews. They're not, yeah. they're not autochthonous. None of them are autochthonous. And this goes mm. for ancient times into Spain and Portugal with the Moors. Empire mm -hmm. failed. The Ottoman Empire failed, right? And, and a lot of others. The seizure of Constantinople, the seizure of uh, previously Christian-owned areas, and certainly the Jewish role, because I forgot to mention that not only were they taxed in order to keep these civilizations going, but the Jews were often hired by the Islamic Caliphate to run the administrations that the Islamic guys couldn't do and, and didn't want to do. The sultans were too fat and rich to bother, and you know lower echelons within the, the their world, uh, especially in the Arab world, couldn't do it. And this is even proven when the Arabs had to bring in Western geologists in order to help them dig up the freaking oil. So right across the board, so even when you're talking about certain exceptions, apparently exceptions to the rule, you've mm -hmm. got to realize that these were often the result of, of uh, conf confiscation and extortion of previous races who had lived there, and they're living on the booty, right? And those l lands might have been then, or sorry, those elements of the civilization often are, are uh, dependent upon Christian thinkers and administrators and on Jewish administrators, when you dig deep and find out. This is generally the tale. There may be exceptions, I don't mm -hmm. know, but I'm just telling you the general story of Islam and the rotten cultures that they you know, raise up, and they're doomed to fall because they're not thrifty, they're otherworldly. It's all in their religion, and they want to turn the West into, into, into exactly that. You know? uh, so in terms of scholarship and learning and mathematics in astronomy, in industry in general, no, they do not qualify and never have. And in the short, and, and sometimes when they have an empire, that empire is sustained entirely by foreign aid, foreign money. Now Benjamin Disraeli understood this, and that's how he got involved. You know, in the in the Ottoman Empire, trying to cut off Germany, all the enemies of Germany, trying to make sure that Germany wouldn't have a trade route. You know, uh, to the east. There's a lot of machinations we can talk about there. But uh, I think we've done justice to that part of it anyway so far. Yeah. It's just, it's, Ayn Rand says it's just envy. And her scholars, her people still maintain this, that the problem with Palestine is only that. 
We can't have a modern democratic society of thrifty, capitalistic, individual-loving Jews anywhere near us. The Sultan had realized this in the previous years and held every, everyone down there into poverty like you can't imagine. And also it's realized by the, the powers today, many of them Islamo-communists anyway, so the last thing they want is for a Jewish free state to be there. And they come up with all this bogus nonsense you know, to demonize Jews and to oppress Jews and say that they shouldn't be here on the land when they secretly know it was all purchased. But they yeah. use this communistic rhetoric of oppression and occupied territory and we're the underdog and they're racists. Don't you know where that language comes from and why the left in America then wants to join with Islam and supports Islam? How can you even make sense of that unless, you know, Unless you realize what I'm saying. Yeah. Just to, I guess, bring some counter to it. I mean, I think the argument could be made that the state of Israel, to some extent, is actually the antithesis of what Ayn Rand teaches when you think about, you know, re refugee camps that exist with intermittent power, water, electricity, like hour, one hour away from no, no, an incredibly no. modern civilization. No, no, no. When we talk the about individual why, rights that, yeah. No, the reason why those things exist is to the Jew with the terrorist organizations, Hamas and Hezbollah and the other ones. The reason why there's no water is because the Hezbollah and the Hamas dug up the pipes, the water pipes in Gaza and in Lebanon and took them to use them as weapons, bombs, the casings. No sooner had millions and millions of dollars been put into laying these uh, pipes when the terrorist organizations dug them up, see, these things will not be told to you, dug up the resources there, dug up the water pipes, thereby cutting off water to their own people. Even after millions had been spent with Israel approval that these water lines should be put into this dastardly primitive place. So, no, no. It's the terrorist organizations backed by the billions of the communist and Nazi enclaves that you know are behind them. It's a new communism, it's neo-communism, it's Islamo-communism, a phenomenon people really need to understand about, otherwise called left-wing anti-Semitism. Michael, can you can you talk about the symbol? I know it might be going back in time or going into a whole other area, but can you talk about the symbolism of the Star of David? Oh, well, uh, the Magan David, yeah, it's not really very old. It only dates to the 1800s when the Jews picked it up. It is a symbol of the Judites. And that's a whole different story that you know my work gets into. Uh, another way to look at it is it was first used thousands of years ago. See, see, most of the Jewish iconography, or that we'd call Israelite Hebrew iconography, doesn't come from their people at all. It comes from Egypt. It comes from Persia. It comes from Assyria. And it comes from Babylon. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, and we're told they were slaves, that, that, that you, can, you can throw that out. And they settled the 10 tribes in the north of Israel, the 10 tribes of Israel in the north part of the, the and the two, 2 2.5 you know, tribes in the house of Judah. That's where, we, that's where a normal Jew thinks he gets the name Jew, Judah, son of Jacob, right? But I've always said that you've got to watch that because titles and names sometimes interchange. 
In fact, we know this because uh, I think it was Judah, it was uh, Jacob that was renamed Israel. Proving my point. Names, personal names, can become titles, and titles become names. We're going to watch out for this. But that would take us in a different direction. So <clears throat> no sooner do the ten tribes associate themselves with the northern kingdom than they're invaded and taken into captivity. So the history of Judaism shows that these people were underdogs for a long, long time. And it, between three and five yeah, times they were taken into captivity for hundreds of years. Now, they were finally released by the Persian king, Cyrus, who liked them. And he liked them because they were thrifty and they were educated. And he said, you know, I'm freeing you guys. But as the story goes, the ten tribes of Israel dispersed into the West. They didn't want to go back to the Dust Bowl. That was Canaan, Palestine, right in the history of the Jews. And only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, went back to what we call Judah and set up again. So a Jew, there's already a problem there because how can they racially date themselves back to only two fucking tribes that went back to the Holy Land and you know constructed the second temple or whatever? Ten tribes dispersed in what's called a diaspora in across the Caucasus Mountains, Caucasus Mountains into the West and are gone from the history books. That's why they're called the Ten Lost Tribes. Right? What they do is they intermarry with all sorts of Gentile races in the West. It's one of the reasons why you get Jewish symbolism turning up in the West, like King David's harp on the Irish flag, you know, the Irish, the Irish world, and then Denmark and other. Yes, because the iconography lasts. These are the ten tribes of Israel marrying into the Western Gentile races and leaving a lot of their iconography that you see used by royals to this day. And one of those icons is the, is the Star of David. But when you realize that David is not a king of Judah and Solomon is not, these are Hyksos nobility, you know, everything changes. In other words, it's an Egyptian star. And what it represented was the gods, the elves, right, the ones on high, and the priests who officiate for them. So when I wore that, I'm saying I'm, it, only, it only could be worn by priests, by koans. And so the so-called Jews had about five different uh, priestly groups, Shilohites, Zadokites, Levites, you know, Aaronites, whatever, you know, a whole bunch of them, right? Uh, and the Levites. Many, many of these different, uh, or I, I, I refer to them in my work, right? And you wore that as a sign. We are pre we're Cohen's, Cohenites. We're the Cohen, right? Like the Cohen breastplate. It just was meant that you're Arya. You're you're you know, you're fucking. The, you're the business. You're the high priests, and you work for the gods. You translate the will of the gods. That's a downward pointing triangle, you know. So it's just one of the icons that got picked up by modern Israel, you know. Uh, who who the hell knows whether it's legitimate or it's not legitimate, you know? But yeah, that's how that came into being. But David is just a word. It's a title. It didn't mean a personal name. Uh, it means a commander, commander of Aton, uh, as does Solomon. These are all relations to the pharaohs of Egypt. But never forget that the, this, oh, one thing to say about these uh, uh, captivities. When the Jews were taken into Babylon, let's just deal with Babylon. 
and stayed there for years, hundreds of years, right? They became, oh, they, be, they became acculturated. So what we know as Judaism is infiltrated with all of these pagan motifs. There's not a single motif that's Jewish in Judaism any more than there is in Christianity. It's the influence of Babylon. Because when they were there, they did well. They started off as slaves. But as the Babylonians, just like I'm talking about the later you know, Islamic countries, these Babylonians started to say, these Jews are real thrifty characters. They read and write. They help us with our administration. You know, they build our temples. They worship. So the story of Judaism is a really interesting one. Living in these cities, they actually became civilized. And it's it's what's called uh, syncretism. And so the Jew, even though he claims to worship a single god, Yehovah, no, he was henotheistic. He was polytheistic. There's another thing that's been hidden. They absorbed the gods from all of these races, including, you know, Canaan, Sumer, Babylon, Assyria, Persia. Anything of Judaism can be traced back. Kabbalah can be traced back to the Persians, you see? And, and then we're not even talking about the Egyptians. And then we have, of course, later on, a little bit later on, the Greeks. The whole Greek army swept in and took over in Judea. And when they were kicked out, the Romans appeared right up until the AD period. So the Jews have been under a form of captivity, you know, just backing that point that I made earlier about them being always guests, uh, often unwelcome, and what have you. They've been underdogs. And one needs to know that. So these anti Semitic writers, you've got the question, as I've done, you know, what they say. It doesn't exonerate any crimes that the Jews have done or you can lay at their door, but it shows you the context of why it happened. But once you understand this history, you do find out more about the Jewish role in, in, in very severe conspiratorial action. But the anti-Semite writers never talk about it. You know, how they actually do end up playing a role in conspiracy. It's the most fascinating thing. It involves people like the Knights Templars and others. And I go into that uh, in the article, Jews and Templars, The Untold Story, and other ones on the female Illuminati site. Yeah. There's something I, I, I wrote down from, from that article, and I was just curious if you want to elaborate on it. Maybe you did a little bit, but you, you wrote the word Ibri or Hebrew occurs some 30 times in the Bible, a small number compared with the 2,500 yeah. appearances of Israel. The two terms are not synonymous. It's a quote from Joseph M. Majrajewski, I think, from a book, The Jews of Egypt. So can you chat about that a little bit? Oh, yeah. See, that goes back to, again, the misuse of terms. That's how I first got into all of this. Checking back on the origin of these terms is one of the best ways to see how you've been had. The word Hebrew, it alludes to a Western group known as the Ibaru. You can add an H to that if you want, but it's H has always been silent. And really, the pure word that it comes from is not referring to a race, but refers to a caste, just like the word Aryan actually refers to a caste, not a race. Again, more deception, right? And it's a race that, although they started in the West, they were to be found all over the world. And they were just the advisors to Pharaoh, the great sages. Uh, Pythagoras would have been one of the Ibaru. And the Ibaru were the great sages of the world. You can have Jewish ones, you can have Babylonian ones. They were everywhere. you know. So yeah, 
And then on my etymology page, which you can find on irishoriginsofcivilization.com, I go into that as well to show you that even there is original, you know, there may be Hiberni, words that connotate the West Ireland, you know, Iberia. There's a lot of Western connotations to that word. Because, as I said, although scholars admit that the Egyptian influence, and the Babylonian influence, and the Persian and Assyrian influence, they never actually uh, ever touch upon the British influence, specifically the Druids. So my works start to talk about the other influence into Judaism, tree worship. I wrote two books on that, Trees of Life. And uh, that's a fascinating story. The word Jew itself, even coming from the yew tree, and the word Levite representing the Rowan tree. <clears throat> you know, so that, this is another phenomenally intriguing aspect to Judaism's history, its debt to Druidism or Druidry. Yeah. And, Am I go? Uh, yep, oh, go. sorry, you go. No, you go. No, you go. You well, go. I was just, I'm just um, curious in regards to you hear so often in this world, like, you know, everything's split up into binaries and, and divide and conquer and, you know, Republican and Democrat, Jews, Christian, you know, you talk about this in your article, but in terms of like, if there isn't the Jewish conspiracy, like who's at the top of the, in terms of based on your research that you feel that are pulling the strings and pitting everyone against each other? Oh, well, it's the, it's the group I call Atnast Setians. And they married in with, after they were expelled from Egypt, they moved to many, many countries. What we call the, see, the Bible is a hopeless document. It, it, it is a mythmonger's account of these things we're talking about. <clears throat> but it's done more damage than good. Uh, so Akhenaten and his Atonists, they're rescripted as Moses and the Israelites, or Aaron and the Israelites, you know, whatever way you want to look at it. And so the antics of Moses and Aaron and the Israelites are really the story of a kingly people, the shepherd kings, the Hyksos. You've had Ralph Ellis on. He's one of the great mm -hmm. authorities of this. And so one of the places that they moved to was Ireland. They moved west. It took a long time. Excuse me. They had the, Their homeland was Scythia. And they went back there, but that didn't work. Uh, and they ended up in Spain. And then they went over to Ireland. And Irish mythology clearly tells you. In fact, one of their great princesses is actually buried in Ireland, right? And she gave her name to Scotland. Um, what was your question again? Well, I was just saying that, you know, who, who, if you think so about... If, if not the Jews, who is at the root of this world conspiracy? Oh, yes. yeah. Well, this Atonist group, these are Atonists, Atian Setonists, Setians. They're the ones. Now, in this transit that I'm talking about, when they were thrown out of Egypt, and they settled in many, many lands, and this includes Greece and Rome, one other land that they settled in was Parthia, right? And they formed what Ralph Ellis discovered. He's one of the people who actually discovered what I'm going to talk about right now. wasn't even in the history books. Is the House of Edessa, E-D-E-S-S-A, -S -S Edessa. Mm -hmm. And these Edessan royals were unbelievable. And he writes about them, right? They had red-haired women and you know queens and all of this. That group were so eminent that they felt that they could overthrow the Roman 
system and that they should be the Roman emperors and Caesars, right? Instead of Rome. They were vying for that power of the Roman Empire. And as part of their designs, they moved, some of their coterie moved. Ralph says they were probably thrown out of Parthia just because of the way they were. But in any case, they ended up uh, in the Middle East, in Syria, in Palestine, places like that, right? In Judea. And while they were there, they married in with some very wealthy Jewish merchants, only a small group. And then they formed what was known as the fourth sect. Right? And it turns out that the fourth sect included James, the brother of Jesus, because the Jesus character, as Ralph Ellis beautifully shows, but other people have thought about this too. Even Sigmund Freud had talked about this, that Jesus was not, you know, the one, as I say, portrayed in the, in the New Testament. He was a king and a warlord of this house of Edessa. And his family married in, there were Parthians, there were Atonists, Egyptian Parthians, who when they, that family conquered lands in Syria, they married in with rich Jewish families. And so this is the real origin of what later was called the Jewish conspiracy, but no anti-Semitic writer knows about it. So it's so bizarre, right? So, but they're only a small coterie, a very important one, and there certainly was this liaison between the two, but the real movers and shakers are not the Jews, right? Not originally. The original architects of world control are these Atnesetians. And once you follow their trajectory through history, yes, it does interlock with Jewish families, but it also interlocks with thousands of Gentile families too. So you cannot say that just because the fourth sect had some Jews in it, that it's a Jewish fucking conspiracy. And I refuse now to sign on for that. But Jews were involved. And these are the Jews who then you do find later on, you know, in the form of Moses Mendelssohn forming the Illuminati and the Martinists and the Grand Orient, you know, and Scottish Rite. Of course, of course you find them. That's what the big G also is, you know, in, in the Masonic uh, diadem. Another group, a Jewish group called the Gaionim. Mm. And I wrote an article, you know, like I said, the uh, Princes of Light. It's the, it's the last article on the female Illuminati that goes into that role. They're Jews. Who are they when they're home, right? Well, again, they track down from the old days of the Atonists when you realize who they are. Remember I said there was priesthoods? One of the priesthoods of the Atonists was called the uh, Zadokites. Zadok, or Melchizedek, Order of Melchizedek. They turn up in the, in the Jewish religion, Jewish culture, as what we know as uh, Sadducees. So I tell the story you know, of that connection. So there are Jewish connections. I've never denied that. But I'm pointing out the ones that really are substantial in this mess. You know, and, and sadly you'll never hear you'll never hear, you know, anything about that from anti-Semitic sources or most Christian sources. There's so much information to to delve into. I mean, just your femaleluminati.com website has several articles and each one takes like an hour or two to read. Um, but yeah, it's pretty incredible. Do you have any final thoughts? Obviously, there's so many ways to to go with this and things to highlight, but anything else you want to say, Michael? No, except that uh, we've done podcasts on most of the articles at some point. So 
And uh, we've done great work on Islamo-communism, you know, interviews with uh, Chuck Morse. He's also mm -hmm. known as Charles Moskowitz. So if you do a search, yeah, do so on Charles episodes. Moskowitz. What's that? Those are some great episodes I've listened to in the past. Yeah, yeah. So use that. Uh, go to my blog. Uh, search the blog under keywords like Islam or, you know, Judaism. There's some good stuff there. The articles for certain and, oh, oh, I've done one called the Khazar Conspiracy, just to clean up that. We didn't get a chance to talk about the Khazar oh, Conspiracy. Yeah. But that's another that hobby. Khazarian Mafia, Khazarian Mafia. Everyone brings that up. Yeah. Uh, we did a real magnum opus on that. Uh, another one of the hobby horses of the anti-Semitic crowd, you know, and to clear that up. <clears throat> and as I say, it's still ongoing. Uh, but I think that one, if somebody studies the real history of Judaism and this history of anti-Semitism as an actual subject, which none of these people do, this is the most extraordinary thing. You come up with these counterpointing ideas. Um, it doesn't discount the role of Jews in, say, conspiratorial action. Oh, yes, I remember another thing that was, uh, I forgot before. And I do mention this in the article that you're talking about, the number three. Mm -hmm. If somebody really can't accept any of this, I'll meet them halfway by saying that prior to the discovery of Israel, right, prior to the settlement of Israel, there were Jewish movements throughout these different other civilizations, like Russia, for instance, and Germany, and Hungary, and what have you, and Austria, where Jews were very active in terms of subversion. There's no denying it. And the you know the police secret intelligence of these nations sometimes had their hands full of these sort of anarchistic Jews running around. But the thing is that they fall under that group, bad as they were. They were interested in foment and anarchy and revolution in protest about the way they were being treated. And their need to gain, you know, uh, like you saw asked about Zionism earlier, they were infected by the Zionistic cause that we want our own homeland. And so a great deal of their machinations, very similar to the Republican Irish, forming the IRA, whose mandate was we're going to chuck bombs and kill people and blow you know, up babies and kill police, innocent policemen and all this. We're going to do all of this because we want United Ireland. Okay, right? So these little anarchistic groups, many of whom were these rabid, left-wing, nutball Jews, were doing this in order to incite their people to say, we're not at home in these lands, and we're going to blow up buildings, and we're going to kidnap and murder and kill. And this was done because they felt like an underclass. And it was done to mobilize the Jewish population to say, we don't want to live in shuttles and ghettos. We want our own promised land. We want to be our own people. So again, the young, young Jews, you know, caught up in the Zionistic nonsense, in the famous covenant idea, and they got into this British Israelite idea, you know, and the idea of Zionism, proto-Zionism. But after these people get the homeland in 1948, what I'm saying is, can you still then argue? for a Jewish 
universal conspiracy? And I think the answer is no. I'm not asking anybody to believe this, but I think it's not. Then to finish with, you know, because they got what they want. I don't see that that kind of foment and anarchy, there's a case to maintain it after 1948. That's it, one of the reasons why these other Gentile governments said, oh, just give them the land then. And mobilized, you know, through the EU or whatever, the Balfour Declaration, the Palestine Mandate, to give them the land. <coughs> so if you could argue that there was conspiratorial action on the part of Jews prior to 1948, I'm, I'm with you. I can accept that and we can look at that. But after 1948, the case is nowhere near substantial that such a thing exists. It really isn't. And one has to really, you know, make up a lot of nonsense, which the Christian right and the neo-Nazis and the anti-Semitic people do, you know. But you see, what they forget is that there are innumerable Gentile groups who acted in the same way for same causes. I just mentioned the IRA, right? But you're not going to tell me that Barter, Meinhof, and my God, hundreds of other groups in every country of the world, in every country of the world, also didn't have some hobby horse like that or a bugbear and cause uh, trouble? even in Islam or in South America, right? Of course they did. How can you single out the Jews for, for doing things like that? Isn't this an overarching issue, which I think actually serves like the agenda of, you know, these, these ancient cults that in our minds, they, they, they kind of sell us the most radical minorities of each religion, creed, sect or whatever, then psychologically we conflate this extremism with the entire group of people. We, we collectivize yeah. and tribalize people with the extremism that now we're constantly being pitched through media, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Partly that's done to cover and shield ourselves from our own violence. If you have th that group over there, it's like gang warfare, right? They made me do it. Each group, by dint of it being collectivistic, is what Ayn Rand was so brilliant at, commits intolerable crimes. But the classic way out of that is to say, but I was provoked by that gang over there. There's something, you know, Freud mentioned this, that deep down inside we have a pension for violence. So we're always looking for conflict. We're all, even in a marriage, even in, you know, with our children or our neighbors, you know what I mean? Or a political divide or the football team. You see, we'll always find it's just human nature. This goes beyond race, color, ethnicity. It's just this incredible need that we have to commit violence. And it has to be looked at. Why do you think that is? Hmm. Um, oh, uh, wow, that takes us into a whole different yeah. subject. Uh, yeah, the psychology of, of destructiveness. We we just did a podcast on it a couple of weeks ago called The Anatomy of Human Destructiveness. Mm -hmm. I would recommend that to people. It's just there because uh, it relates to the will, to the nature of the will, and its origins are in uh, the conquest of nature mm -hmm. and you know, partly the need of that our defense against the elements and the animal kingdom. And also it's based in uh, something we certainly won't have time to talk about, which is uh, 
it's known as facticity, and that is just the situation you find yourself when you're born and, you know, throughout your life that you really can't change. See, we're not born with a, a magical ability to say, oh, I don't like this thing about me. Boom, change it, press a button. We're locked in, right? And the only way that we then find that enables us to change our situation, you know, like say from poor to rich, from stupid to intelligent, from enslaved to free, is the will. So the answer to that is the will, what Nietzsche called the will to power. And when the will is Faustian and Machiavellian, as it quickly becomes, because we find out it works, hey, guess what? When I exert my will in order to change my facticity, the, the, the horrible situations in which I find myself, I mobilize my human will and I find it works. So we become what I call disciples of the mysterium, given that the mysterium is the will, the will to power. And obviously then, once you become so addicted to the will, then violence, very violent will, uh, coming into conflict with the wills of others, I would say would be the closest thing I can quickly give a thumbnail you know, answer to that. Uh, always adding the great thinker, Viktor Frankl, who said that although that is our lot in the beginning, in the raw Faustian sense of the will to power, it will eventually transmute or can transmute in the more awakened person into the will to meaning. So I'm also, you know, hugely, and by the way, his work corresponds very closely to Ayn Rand. Her story of heroism, you know, her definition of the hero is very much a being who's done that, transmuted his will to power, uh, where it's not so conflictual and it's not so oppositional, but it is a move to a vocational level. You guys know all about that. So, you know, this is the beautiful story of the will and how it can transmute. But to ask you as much question, in the early stages, your will is bound to clash, right, with the will of others. Mm -hmm. That's almost this facticity itself that, oh, I want to exert my will. Yeah, but so do you want to exert your will? So, oh dear, you know, and in our civilization, we still haven't really found a way around that, you know, or if it does, it's bloody temporary. And suddenly, you know, we find a way to work together, but then guess what? Uh, a new conflict arises, and we're back at it again. And what goes for the individual can go for a whole culture or society in which, you know, there's harmony for a minute, but then there's clashing again. And it's really, really amazing. It happens on the sociological level as well, as it's happening now. We're always looking in some sense to, you know, find a cause which brings us into conflict. It really does lead us then into deep psychology, deep philosophy to work that out. Yeah, you said in a previous episode of ours too that people find their identity in relationship to conflict with the other, something of that nature. You 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 got into, and uh, it's, it's right. fascinating. Yeah, to witness like I have identity. I am who I am because of my opposition to this other group, these other people. Absolutely, that's where it's been done. Can you think of how many? You know, growing up in Northern Ireland, you know, you see that incredibly. The people who are basically of the same background or whatever, just over tiny little religious differences, you know, for a horseshoe nail, right? The, 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 the battle was lost. Absolutely incredible. This, both sides are going, you know, just looking for anything. Yeah. That's why psychology is so much part of my work because there's no answer to these things unless you do go into philosophy and psychology 
you know, if you're sincere and you want to break away from the dogma and you want to be the crab that leaves the bucket and you want to be somebody who says, no, I want to look deeper. Well, how would you? If your ears are just filled with what the dogmatists are saying, well, sure, you know, they're black on one side of the face, we're white on the other. You know, they got the opposite. We'll have to fight them to the death. Anyone who can't see through that, you know, or even they say, okay, wait, maybe there are genuine reasons for conflict, but I want to know their history, their theology. Let's go in and find out where this came from. It must have an origin. Or as, as, as you said earlier on, is there some higher hand that has the psychological knowledge that I don't have, who foments this on purpose, who keeps, keeps us doing the Tweedledum, Tweedledee thing, the Punch and Judy show? There's another study. Is there somebody upstairs who benefits you know, from this conflict? We've already said that there's instances of satanic groups infiltrating Christianity and Islam and Judaism, and, and that's provable. Well, aren't those groups, don't they have a vested interest in keeping conflicts going? As I said, prior to 1967 and 1948, the, the, the Islamic way of being wasn't as antagonistic, or you could say before the Shah of Iran was deposed, right? Certain groups that were Islamic were looking to the West and shaking hands with the West and being very, very favorable to the West. Lebanon was known as the Paris of the West, of the East, of the Middle East, right? Baghdad was modern. 80% of the teachers were trained in the West, in Oxford and Cambridge and other places. The liaisons with the West and with America were absolutely excellent under benign monarchs like the Shah. So when the great empires, Austro-Hungary, Germany, France, Russia, and Britain, these great empires, right, the British Empire, all these, they were all empires, including the Ottoman Empire. When they started to crumble, we forgot that the, there was other little examples of an empire, like, say, the Shah in Iran. That was an empire. That was a little, you know, royal dynasty. He got pulled out of power, leaving only ones in Denmark and Sweden, which are ridiculous, and the Bernadotes and the Vasa, you know, it's like ugh, hardly important. Or Juan Carlos in Spain, you know, you still get monarchies here and there, but they're nothing compared to the days of the great, great, great empires. And so, in who brought them down? How can that all happen suddenly? It's a whole study I go into in other articles that the fall of these great empires then led to a geopolitical situation from which we get the EU and the UN, right? And the new America and the new democracies, as they're laughingly called. New empires growing out of the old. And I'm fascinated with that story, you know, of uh, the aftermath of these crumbling empires and what came to replace them. And who's ruling the new empires? Who, who shuffled the cards? Who rose to the top? You know, and who's ruling the world today? And what are there also, you know, if you want to use the word religious beliefs, what is it they believe in? Is it just money? Is it just Machiavellian power? Well, yeah, it is for the, some of the lower rank and file who run these horrible hierarchies. But is that the same for the removed pyramid at the very top? I don't think so. They're into something unbelievable, you know. And even that article you spoke about goes into the set worship, shows you what, you know, how it came about. There's a, actually a podcast we've done. 
There's two if I could recommend. One is the Jews and Templars, the Untold Story podcast on Unslaved. That'll just take you, walk you all the way through everything we're talking about. Princes of Light, based on the article in May, is very, very good for that. Uh, and uh, the Khazar Conspiracy. Yeah, the, the, we've done some really good work. Uh, it's not that it's you know concluded, but more to be said. But I think, you know, and we didn't get a lot of time to, to talk about the Templar tie-in, which will really, really answer, you know, if we were to continue doing this, we would talk about the Templar rule, which is really the crucial rule. And once you know that rule, well, it's in the article anyway, but once you know the rule of the Knights Templar and all of this, now the whole story of Jewish conspiracy, you know, will completely make sense. So, uh, you know, we, we didn't get a chance to talk about that. I think we, we covered as always and gave people a lot to, to chew on, uh, regardless, for sure. As always, Michael, thanks for uh, sharing your time with us. You know, I know oh, you're busy, yeah. probably working on multiple projects, so we appreciate it. Oh, yeah, yeah, a lot of effort. Uh, we've been doing some good work on Enslaved uh, recently. There's always, there's always new avenues to go in. You see, that, that's the thing. It's all ongoing. Like I said at the beginning of this show, I read, you know, the anti-Semitic writers. That was my platform in the beginning, you know. But then I, I did the unthinkable by always studying the opposing side and then finally saying, this is a very interesting subject, this anti-Semitism. Does it have a history? And that's when things really opened up and you're able to break the dogmatic slumber, you know, instead of identifying with just one or two groups, I guess, my upbringing in Ireland and having to always, you know, look at both sides of the story there was a really good uh, primer for getting me to do it in other areas as well. But thanks anyway, guys, for giving me the opportunity to share this. Well, this is another reminder too, is that like, it's such an ongoing process. You know, I relate it to like personal development with some people when you talk to them like, oh, I've healed that. I've worked on that. And like very flippantly, it's like, well, there's so much depth to who you are as a human being and what you've experienced and in, in the world like who you have to do so much work and research to be able to gather and balance all this stuff people read one headline and they figure and they think they have the truth and it's just much more deep and nuanced than that yeah yeah it's lazy minds it's uh i don't need to be dealing with the truth i've got my dogma when you say that then you've got another guy on the other side with his dogma mm-hmm. you see and suddenly you will be in conflict with somebody. The open, free mind doesn't necessarily have that because he's too busy seeing both sides of it or other sides of it that don't even come to the table. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, so there's no, I won't apologize for that uh, because this, this uh, type of uh, dynamic exists across the board in all kinds of knowledge and all kinds of uh, searches and learnings. And sometimes the road has its own you know, strange properties. It meanders in a certain way that you, when you set out, you know, with the tools that you've got, mm. you don't know where the road itself is going to lead you. It has its yeah. own contours. And the the clever traveler, he adapts as he goes. Mm. He, do, he doesn't just have this fixed idea. I saw the map. I'm going to go by that. No, the, the terrain itself dictates where you're going to go, mate. Yeah. And being able to even hold space within yourself of like, I could be wrong. 
you know, and so that leads you to exploring more and learning more is in terms of just instead of just being in this dogmatic, I'm certain I have the truth and that's it. And I will take nothing else in. It's been that's how it's been on my path, even being open to things on like the, you know, the more medical or, or healing side, you know, being open to to new paradigms that have blown my mind. Yeah. And I think also like not making a guru out of any truth seeker, any researcher, never putting someone on such a high pedestal that you just take everything that they're saying at face value automatically and always putting the onus back on yourself to if you're questioning something, to, to go dig yourself. Because I'm seeing many people now just wanting the easy path of being like, oh, this podcast has all the answers or that researcher has all the answers. So that's that's I'm done. My work's finished then. And any great teacher will never tell you that they have all the answers. Mm-hmm. You can tell the great ones because they will insist upon what you just said, that you must walk the road yourself, doubt, go check it out, you know? Yeah. Michael, thanks again for your time. Everyone else, thank you for listening. No worries, mate. Thanks. Best yes. of luck. We'll see you next time. Well, that was an interesting conversation. Yeah, it was a it was a great conversation, obviously, having the opportunity to to interact with someone who's done tons of research. Uh, I think could be a triggering episode for for some people as well. Um, but it just highlights even more how important it is for a sincere truth seeker to be able to hold space within themselves, you know, things that could be triggering, you know, and 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 um and how you navigate that and how you deal with that. Uh, but yeah, I'm always I always love listening to these conversations, I always love listening to what Michael has to share. And uh, you know, the journey continues. Yeah, man. I hear you, bro. I think like we kind of touched on at the end of the episode, it's so easy to get caught in our singular way of thinking. And then through that, we only seek information to confirm our biases and to confirm our, our general leanings, you know, in many ways out of, out of fear of being wrong, you know, or out of fear of staking our flag in the ground uh, for such yeah. a long time in, in something that also has, has a broader context. Now I'm not here by any means saying that I I I I agree with every single thing that Michael shared in that conversation and I've or that I've done the level of research that he's done. So the answer in many ways is I don't know, but also the truth is is that I welcome the broadening of my perspective. I welcome the broadening of my consciousness because this is a conversation with so many camps all around it. You know that analogy of like, you know, everyone's got one hand on the on the elephant and it all feels different. It's all different textures, different shapes. And that's kind of what's taking place here. So I think in order to, you know, really gather discernment, nuance, widen ourselves internally, it's very important to put ourselves in the fire and sit around conversations that are going to trigger um, and stretch us. Yeah. And again, it doesn't mean you have to agree with everything, but it's like what's happening inside of you? You know, do you get so triggered? Do you get so emotionally reactive? And something that I've been seeing a lot lately, uh, especially over the last few years, but even more recently is people who like, let's say they're following someone or, you know, they admire someone or respect someone. But then that person says one thing that they disagree with. And then the individual is like, that's it. I'm done with everything this person has ever said. How could I have ever trusted anything this person said because you don't agree with one thing? And it just seems ridiculous to me. And I witnessed that all over the place. It, it, it is ridiculous. And I think particularly in the age of social media, when now we're all commenting on things in real time, 
it's ridiculous to believe that our commentary in real time is going to be able to en- encapsulate the depth or the evolution of our of our thinking process around a particular topic. So, you know, I think it's important that we all give ourselves a bit of grace in each other, a bit, a bit of grace in being able to come to new ideas and being able to evolve um, our, our thinking around whatever it might be. Yeah, I agree. And then again, like highlighting what Michael said at the end of that, like mm-hmm. how many people that come to something with a strong, strong belief system make the conscious choice to go, you know what? Now I'm going to research the complete opposite and see where that leads me. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a rare individual. I can't say that I do that all the time. Um, so it, it, it is, it is, man. And like, it's something that I've definitely been trying to do particular, particularly with, with this topic, you know, um, my dad was Palestinian. My dad was born in Jerusalem. Um, I've kind of like grown up around this, this, this duality, you know, this, this Israel, Palestine, Palestine, this Israel, Palestine paradigm for a long time. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm definitely holding myself accountable to to put my feet in the fire. And I want to know, I want to know what everyone's saying. You know, I want I want to seek out all the answers. I want to understand what someone who completely disagrees with me is thinking, where their thinking comes from, what their sources are. And I, I need to go dig in that arena because ultimately, that's what it means to be here for the truth. And that's why we have this podcast to have these conversations, to have these dialogues. Intuitively, we invite the people on, and we have the conversations that we feel need to be had. Because really, this is a manifestation of our own truth-seeking process. We have these conversations because we want to know the answers, because we're curious, right? And ultimately, we have the amazing opportunity to have an audience witness that process as well. And for you guys to go on your own um, investigative process as well and broaden your own consciousness through experiencing these dialogues. Yeah, and check to see where you may have blind spots in your Mm -hmm. thinking. You know, And I think a lot of times our emotional reactions are a signpost to that. Uh, where we can kind of investigate further or see what what more internal work needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I mean, with this topic in particular, man, there's so many strong views, so and so many strong views that come across as so grounded and so rooted in so much history and research and even even lived experience. It's a very, very, very tricky and precarious one to to unpack. Um, but the process continues. I hear you, man. All right, guys. Much love and respect. Thanks for being here. We appreciate you all. We keep going. Take care. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a the time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms because they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward and never